Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So, page 71, beginning to read Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord." So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Ziphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Now we're going to move forwards to Exodus 14, verse 26, which is over the page. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, 
and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Ian, thank you very much for reading for us. Do keep your Bibles open at that reading from Exodus 13 and 14. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we live in a world which is so often full of pain and confusion. We so often feel short of answers and at times it feels as if you're not in charge of this world. And Father, we pray this morning that you would give us a fresh understanding of who you are and what you are doing and what it means to be one of your people, that we may be those who fear and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was six, my family moved from the US to England. Uh, It was a big deal for us. Uh, My family are American. I was born there. All our friends and family lived there. My dad had a good job there, and we had a family home. But there was a small church in England that was looking for some families to come and help support the small church that they might grow. And the local pastor there was desperate for families to move to support them, and um, uh, my parents decided to go. Uh, My dad gave up his job. We sold the family home. Uh, It was a big deal for us. And yet there were people with us back in the US who who were praying about it and they felt this was God's will for us. They encouraged us to go. And as we left, yes, we were scared, but it it felt good to be stepping out in faith and putting God first as we moved across the Atlantic. I tell you this uh, not to kind of boast and say, look at us. I mean, I was only six. I had no idea what was going on. But um, I tell you it because of what happened next. Within months of our move, the local English pastor had to step down amidst serious moral failings, and what he did caused the church to explode. That little church didn't survive. It was nothing after a few months. And there we were, with no house, no job, no reason for being 3,000 miles from family, home, and friends, and it was tough. It felt like God had abandoned us as a family. It felt like we had entrusted ourselves to God to serve him and love him, and he had let us down big time. And I tell you this, not to get sympathy from you this morning, but because I reckon in a room this size, there'll be lots of people who have experienced, though perhaps different circumstances, but the same problems with God the same sense of abandonment, the same questions about where is God, why, what is God doing, the same pain, the same sense of 
betrayal because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And if we haven't yet found ourselves in that moment, well then our lives can change in just an instant, can't it? We've seen, haven't we, on Friday night how in just a moment people's lives can be completely and utterly transformed in just a few seconds. And there are many people today crying out, what is God doing? Is he still around? Is he, is he able to run the world? Is he competent enough to have that job? Well, if we are struggling with the way God is looking after us and the world, then we are not the first people to struggle with that problem. Over the last few weeks, we've seen how God has stepped in and rescued his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And now free, his people have begun a great journey that will dominate the next few weeks of Exodus as they head from Egypt out towards the promised land. But a crisis is coming on this journey and it leads God's people to cry out a most desperate cry. It was there in our reading. It's there in verse 12 of chapter 14. The people cry out to Moses and to God, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. That is a wretched thing for God's people to cry out because they are in a wretched crisis. They are grappling with the way God has decided to run their lives. And perhaps too, as we think about our own lives, the world around us, as we, as Christians, journey from slavery towards the promised land, we may too come across moments where we think God has just let us down in the most horrendous way. Well, this morning, as we watch God's people struggling with the way God is leading them, we see how God responds. And I think we see three remarkable things about God which makes a huge difference to us in those moments. We won't find in this passage all the answers we want to suffering and to crisis and to loss, but we do find some wonderful answers. First of all, I think we see God is wise enough to know the best route. We pick up the story back in chapter 13. You can imagine the mood in the camp as as the people uh, rush out of Egypt. They've just been uh, liberated from the great superpower of the day. They've been enslaved for generations, but now the moment has come, they are free, and they're hurtling out of Egypt towards the promised land. And you can imagine the plan, can't you? Set the sat-nav to the most direct route possible, away from Egypt, back to safety in the promised land. But look at verse 17 of chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. Now this seems strange. Uh, What happens next, it's it's like uh, setting off from, from Sheffield towards London, but going via Glasgow and Land's End. Uh, The kind of the journey that happens next, it it doesn't make any sense in one level. You can imagine the Israelites thinking, we should go this way, it's quicker. And God says, no, we're going that way. Why? Well, because God knows how much his people can handle. Verse 17 continues. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. 
I used to, uh, to hate cross-country at school. We always did it in January, and it was, uh, as you can imagine, in Scotland, always uh, cold and rainy, and the mud was thick, and uh, I was dreadfully unfit as well. And uh, it was a massive ordeal for me getting through January and cross-country. I had a friend who was annoyingly fit, and he seemed to thrive on mud and rain. And as we would head out and do our laps around the, uh, the school playing fields, uh, he used to whiz by me occasionally as he lapped me, and he used to cry out to me, come on, what's the problem? And of course, that made me feel even more rubbish about my moment. God's not like that. Yes, he is utterly and inexhaustibly secure, unthreatened and unnerved by anything. Yet he understands our fragility and our fears. And as he leads his people, he understands what we can handle and what we can't handle. And he knows what is coming down the road. In other words, he is wise enough to know the best route. Well, so far, it kind of, it makes sense. We see God looking after his people by not going the obvious way, but but then it gets more tricky in chapter 14. Look at verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to, to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. This is a most bizarre kind of U-turn. They're now trapped in a cul-de-sac. They've got the, the sea behind them, all around them. And the only way out of this cul-de-sac is back the way they came, back into the desert and back towards Egypt. Why this way? Why the U-turn back? Well, verse 3. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And so, verse 4, he will pursue them. It's troubling, but it seems that God is dangling his people like bait in front of Pharaoh, trying to tempt him out into battle. And it doesn't feel very wise or very loving from God, does it? We've just seen how God protects his people from war. He's kind and sensitive then. But, but now, in just a moment later, he's turning his people back to face an even greater crisis, this huge military threat of Pharaoh and Egypt. And it does seem confusing. At times, we experience that, don't we, in our lives? At, at times, we see God's hand clearly protecting us, loving care, looking after us. But then in the next moment, he seems to let us dangle, and it, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Well, why? Why does God allow these moments to come towards us? These moments of overwhelming crises. Well, as I said, we don't have all the answers. Not this side of glory. The Bible does give us, I think, lots of very important clues and ways to put the puzzle together. And here, I think we have one extraordinary piece of the puzzle, which is so important for us to remember. It's there in verse 4. And God says, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did this. You see, God is setting up this whole journey so far. This, these, these U-turns in the desert, circling around, 
being trapped in by the sea, waiting for Pharaoh to arrive. He's doing all of this to demonstrate his glory. And in case we miss that purpose, it's again repeated later on in chapter 14, verse 17, almost exactly the same point is made. God is putting his people in this moment of, of crisis so that they're completely out of their depth and overwhelmed by the circumstances so that he alone is the one with true power and that it may be demonstrated as such to all the watching world. And now God wants to demonstrate his glory to the Egyptians, to his people, to, the, to us, the whole world. Not just because he is glorious, and that is true, but because it's good for us to see his glory. Uh, we see something of this when we go out walking in the hills and the mountains. Just a glimpse, don't we? You know, imagine that the mist is covering the hills, the, the tops of the mountains. We can't see where we are. We can't position ourselves. But then when the mist rolls back and we look up and we see that we are surrounded by mountains towering over us, we are given perspective, aren't we, on who we are, how big we are, and how big the grandeur of the mountains is all around us. And it's good for us to gain that perspective. Well, look at the great perspective change that takes place with these people as they see God's glory. Remember how the people cried out? I read the verse, verse 12. It would have been better for us to stay back in Egypt. They were terrified. But by the end of our story, when we get to the the final verse and they've seen God's glory, look with me at the final verse. See the change that the people have experienced. Verse 31 of chapter 14. After God has revealed his glory, we read this. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, their servant. This is just part of the puzzle. But do you see, at times, God puts his people into a place of tremendous crisis where we are out of our depth so that we can learn to trust him even more. If our journey from conversion, when we became a Christian, all the way through to the new creation, was one long, easy, coasting, carefree, holiday-like journey, then I know that in my own heart, I would quickly become self-reliant and self-preoccupied. And I guess you might as well. And that is why the Apostle Paul would dare to say in Romans 5 in the New Testament that that we rejoice in our sufferings, never in a glib or trite way, but rather because through the sufferings, the Lord helps us to trust in him even more and in ourselves even less. And so it is good for us to understand God's glory to understand where the true power lies. Now, I understand that some of us here this morning might be in the middle of the story of crisis, and we don't have the luxury of racing to the end and seeing how God keeps his promises for us and cares for us. Uh, The fog, if you like, might still be lingering over our understanding of what God is doing. I, I understand that. I feel that. And so I think we need to hear the other stories. 
Stories like Exodus 13 and 14, where we see how God does display his glory for the world to see. How he does keep his people from beginning to end of a crisis. So that we can keep trusting him until our story comes to an end. And I take it that one day, whether now or in the new creation, all of us will be able to look back at our stories, the journey God has chosen for us, and we'll be able to see God's glorious power and purposes at work in every story. God is wise enough to know the best route. What else does this passage say to people struggling with God in a crisis? Well, next, God is powerful enough to defeat the great enemy. We know the story well. You know, we know how God parts the waters of the Red Sea, verse 21, and his people pass through the waters on dry ground. And Pharaoh, who's locked in on his prey, pursues the people of God through the waters until we get to verse 27. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it. The Lord swept them into the sea. The waters flowed back and they covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, none of them survived. It's, it's, it's almost hard to believe, isn't it? It happened so long ago. The story is so grand in scale. And yet this moment of war and battle is as real as any moment of war and battle in history. It's as real as those events we've been remembering, perhaps over the last few weeks. Perhaps think of the D-Day landings, that battle that we know so well. Well, this moment is just as real as any of those moments in history. And it is a remarkable victory. Verse 7, we are told that this Egyptian army was an extraordinary force, 600 of the best chariots, the kind of uh, the ancient equivalent of tanks in our day, an overwhelming force. And yet now at the end of the story, this great army is wiped out. They all die. It, it is tough. It, it's a brutal ending to this story. And, and I imagine next week as we look at chapter 15, we will think more about how we should understand uh, the violence of this story. And as some people read this story, they, they, they try to explain away this victory by, I don't know, citing kind of natural causes for what we read in these verses. You know, so verse 21 talks about a, a strong east wind that comes up and, and it has an impact on the water. Maybe people say this was just a particularly strong gale which caused the waters to ease back enough to, to pave away. But I've never heard of, of kind of natural wind alone causing water to pile up into vertical walls all night. It just doesn't happen normally. Uh, other people say that the, uh, the water was actually just a shallow kind of you know, pond that you could sort of uh, wade through easily. If that's the case, how come the crack troops of the Egyptian army couldn't get across this shallow pond? No, this was the Lord's work in a most remarkable victory. This is God showing he is powerful enough to defeat the greatest army. 
And so this morning, as we think about being God's people on the journey with God towards the promised land, as we think about the kinds of threats and crises that come towards us, this is showing us that God is powerful enough to defeat anything that could come towards us and threaten us. There are no rivals to God's power in this world. But at another level, this great victory is a foretaste of that moment when Christ defeated the greatest enemy of all. You see, our our greatest threat in this world is not from an Egyptian army or, or even from any other physical human army, but rather it is from the danger of sin and the consequences of sin and from that great taskmaster, our oppressor, Satan, who uses sin to crush and condemn and to cause us to be enslaved. Do you remember how Paul puts it in Colossians 2 verse 15? He says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that is Jesus Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We are seeing here a foretaste in Exodus of how the Lord has enough power to defeat the greatest enemy, sin and Satan. And we need to hear this, don't we, as Christians? Uh, in World War II, one of the most famous um, prisons was the, the castle at Kolditz, a you know, very famous uh, moment in, in the history of World War II. It was meant to be uh, escape-proof. They took all the kind of most difficult prisoners and they put it into that castle thinking that no one could escape from the stronghold of Kolditz Castle. Many tried. They reckon about 180 different escape attempts were made throughout the course of the war, but only a handful of people actually made it out of the prison. You see, I reckon sometimes as Christians, we feel as if we are still locked away, and not in some physical castle like Kolditz, but but prisoners still to to sin, prisoners still to guilt and to condemnation, to to fear. Or we might try so very hard to stop sinning, to to kind of cleanse ourselves from those old habits and ways, but no matter how hard we try, we still do the same things again and again and again. And we fear the way sin clings to us, and we can't get it off of us, and it overwhelms us. And the devil would love to accuse us and to make us guilty and to bring us down and to enslave us With the whispers, he whispers into our ear, God cannot love you. He will forsake you at some point. But at the cross, the victory over sin and the devil has been won. It is over decisively once and for all. Oh, we will still sin this side of glory. And yet we sin as people who have been freed from the guilt and condemnation of sin. Some of you may have heard the story of my friend Mike, who I knew at university. Uh, one year after Christmas, we came back from the Christmas holidays and we were catching up. And I said to Mike, oh, Mike, how was, how was the Christmas holidays? And he, he said, it, it was complicated. Uh, you see, I, um, it turns out, as Mike told the story, that on Christmas Eve, on the evening, he, he, took, he borrowed his, car's, his dad's car. It was a brand new BMW. He had his dad's permission. And he went out to a party with the car. And the party was a late one, and he drove back late on Christmas morning, you know, kind of in the early hours of Christmas morning. On the way back, he crashed the car. He wrote it off in quite a significant crash. And uh, he had the car kind of picked up and towed back to the front drive of the family home. Late at night, his dad was in bed. 
And Mike was describing how the rest of that night he couldn't sleep. He couldn't imagine how he was going to say to his dad, Dad, Merry Christmas. Um, I've completely wrecked the new BMW out in the driveway. And he dreaded it. Well, the morning came and he stumbled downstairs and, and he blurted out the news. And his dad said, I know, I've already seen it. It's okay, I forgive you. And uh, it's a wonderful picture of what it means to be released from guilt and condemnation. And the rest of the day was a, a joyous day, and there's no friction between Mike and his dad. And, and what is true between Mike and his dad over one incident is true between us and God over a whole lifetime of sin. We know we sin. It's out there in public. We can't hide from it, if you like. And yet, and of course, we, we dread, don't we, people discovering what we've done and most of all, God knowing how we've lived. But at the cross, God has defeated the greatest enemy of all. And his people are people who have been once and for all released from every sense of guilt and condemnation. You see, Satan would love to, to bring us back into slavery. He, he kind of hunts us down, wanting to whisper in our ear, God cannot love you. You've, you've done it this time. But this victory at the cross says we need never go back for that enemy has been defeated once and for all. What part do we play in this great victory? I love what Exodus 14 says. Verse 13, God says to his people, stand firm and you will see the the deliverance of the Lord. Or verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I love that. This is God's victory and his alone over the greatest enemy. Well, before we move on to a close, I do need to, to mention those terrible events that took place on Friday nights in Paris. So much needs to be said that I can't say about it this morning. But do remember and believe this truth, that God has the power to defeat every enemy and this Red Sea moment as we see Pharaoh and his forces being crushed under God's judgment is just a foretaste of that final day when Christ returns and he puts an end once and for all for every rebellion every one who stands opposed to the Lord and so those who are responsible for carrying out the actions in Paris on Friday night those who planned it those who support it These are acts of great evil and wickedness that the Lord knows about. And one day he will fully and properly judge. No one can escape this God. Well, just as we finish, as we come to a close, a final thought for us. For people who are having problems with God on the journey, finally, God is faithful enough to preserve his people. Growing up, I was always a bit wary of uh, giant aquariums. You know, the kind you get at SeaWorld. It just kind of disturbed me because all that stood between you and this giant wall of water was just a, a thin piece of glass. And I just, I just couldn't handle it. Well, imagine what it must have been like for the people of God crossing through the Red Sea with these two walls of water on either side. But, but this time, there was nothing between them and the water No glass, just the power of God holding back the forces of destruction. 
But look at those words at the end of chapter 14, verse 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and their left. They make it through to the other side, protected, preserved, kept by a faithful God. He is keeping his word in this moment to bring his people from Egypt through all the twists and turns of life into the promised land. And no matter what route is taken, no no matter how random it looks, no matter how pressing the crisis felt, no matter how scary the enemy is, God is faithfully preserving his people. And as God's people arrive safely on the far shore, this is again a picture, a shadow of that final day when Christ returns. And he will keep his people safe on that day. He will keep us through the waters of judgment. And he will bring us safely through to the promised land of the new creation. There will be moments in our lives when we feel deeply confused by what God is doing. We might feel as if God has abandoned us on the journey. We, we look for answers to help us understand what is happening. But so often we don't find them in the moment. The Bible is not a handbook full of specific answers to specific problems in life. Oh, that we wish it were at times, but we don't find them in the Bible. But what the Bible does give us is a tremendous insight into the living God who is wise enough and powerful enough and faithful enough to keep his people through to the end. And so we are asked to believe and to trust. Not because we have all the answers we want to the problems and crisis of this world, but because rather we have met the living God who has what it takes to bring his people through. And the final verse of Exodus 14 tells us how we should respond to everything we've seen this morning. Read with me if you would, verse 31. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. That's the right way to respond to the glory of the God we see in Exodus 13 and 14. How much more should we fear and trust? For we know far more about God than these people did. For we have seen the ultimate demonstration of God's wisdom and his power and his faithfulness. We have seen it once and for all at the cross. Just a moment perhaps now of of silence reflecting on what we've heard in Paris, on our own lives, the struggles we have, but also the sovereign, powerful, faithful, loving Lord. And then after a moment or two, uh, it'll be time for us to pray and Abby will come and lead us in our prayers.